everyone, and welcome back to the ICU Ed and Toddcast, ICU Ed Like Education, Ed and Todd, Toddcast Podcast. I am Eddie, he is Todd, and welcome to a special bonus episode. This is releasing off schedule for us. We had the wonderful opportunity to do a live show of the episode at the VUMC Adult ACNP and PA Critical Care Boot Camp, and this episode is just the release of that. We only had a 20-minute slot, so in the middle, you're going to hear a transition sound where we'll cut back to the studio and talk a little bit more in depth about the methods, which we had to cut out for the presentation. Before we get to that, Todd, you've been around the boot camp since its inception. I've helped out here and there for a couple of years. It's really an amazing experience where learners get experience with ultrasound, procedures, in addition to a couple days of high-yield didactics. I think the most impressive thing is how dissatisfied the organizers are with their current level of success and are constantly finding ways to raise the bar. I think this year they added a cadaver lab skills portion. Anything else that you want to say about the boot camp? Yeah, you probably know this better than I do, but it's started maybe in 2014 or 2015, something like that. So it's almost a decade old, almost 10 years now. And I think it probably is the premier learning opportunity for advanced practice providers in critical care. You know, it's a national boot camp that they open up the slots in March and for a boot camp that's always in September. And it literally sells out in like 48 hours. There's a two day didactic component, but then on either end of that, there are skills sessions and there's a half day of ultrasound that the students go through. Actually, I think it's a full day of ultrasound focus that the students go through. There's some ECMO simulation some years. It's just a tour de force in both simulation and didactic learning of critical illness. And while it's geared towards advanced practice providers, I end up going every year, often because they ask me to speak on a topic. But I sit there the whole time because I learn tons of stuff sitting in that room uh, every single year. Yeah, no, it was really a a humbling offer for them to offer us to do a live show there. So without any further ado, enjoy the live show. You know, I was was actually wondering uh, why they decided to go with Todd with all his accolades first, and then they would go ahead and me, and I I swam in college, I guess, you know? That was was a long time ago. That was a highlight. That was a highlight of my medical career. Yeah. we, uh, you can all, tell definitely a swimmer's body. First, first of all, can we uh, can we just give a big round of applause to all the organizers of boot camp? This is a huge undertaking. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, can we can we also give a round of applause for you all for being here? You came to Nashville with a honky tonks, clearly, but we're going to learn a little something along the way. So let's give a round of applause for you. Guys. Um, so uh, Todd, Todd wanted me to ask this before we begin, so uh, we're a little bit uh, technologically behind on the Ed and Toddcast. So we're just going to go raise a hand that before today, you've heard of the Ed and Toddcast. See some hands, see some half hands, people are like embarrassed. Right. They, they, they They're standing us. on stage, we can't say no. <laughs> uh, I see Ed and Toddcast, we are, like I said, we are a critical care education podcast. How we do critical education is we use journal articles to uh, as a jumping off point for a discussion uh, in important critical care topics. Uh, you may have heard that in critical care that papers, they fall into one of two categories. Either we knew that answer and it doesn't change my practice, or we I don't believe that and it doesn't change my practice. <laughs> and we kind of believe that there's a little bit of gray area in between. So, so that's where we are. Todd, do you have anything else? 
you'd like to say for intro? No, the only thing I, the one thing I say no, and then I say something, that's how I treat Eddie and the Jana often says this in the introduction and she didn't this year. So I'll get to say it, which was, uh, art was very adamant that, uh, medicine in general, and especially critical care is a lifelong learning and that you have to learn pretty much every day. And he told the APPs when he hired them, my expectation is, is that you will read one article every single day. And he knew that none of us read an article every single day. But if you put that out there as your goal and your mission, I think you're standing too close to me, Eddie. To read one article every single day and you read three articles a week, uh, you'll be better for it. Your practice will be better for it. And the patient's care will be better for it. Part of what we're trying to do in this podcast is help you read that article um, and uh, do a deep dive on an article and understand and learn some. And so uh, this is one of the ways in today's age that you can do continuing education. Great. Uh, so we will jump right in. We usually don't start with a case, but uh, Todd insisted. Um, and it's actually important to why we chose this, art- chose this article today. So we have a 72-year-old gentleman who has maybe lupus. That's verbatim from the chart, maybe lupus, question mark. Uh, and they're coming in with ultramental status, shock, AKI. They have some cloudy urine. And so they get intubated for their ultramental status. They have pressors, fluids. They're diagnosed with UTI. We start them on broad-spectrum antibiotics. And they have septic shock from a urinary source. I'm done. I fixed them. Uh, thank you for listening to our podcast. I just want to say, at least they didn't say maybe chronic Foley. Yeah, maybe chronic Foley. Um, clearly, nobody believed me. I expected Todd not to believe me. But uh, three days later, you know, his the patient's hemodynamics are better. Uh, they're no longer in shock. Blood pressure is okay. But they're still, like, not doing anything from a mental status standpoint, like not no response to pain. They've been oligaric this whole time. So their kidney function has not improved. This is where they are on the ventilator and for their BMP. They're on pressure support five over five and 21% FiO2. Their BMP, I mean, their K is a little bit high. They're, they have an acidosis, but it's okay. Their BUN and creatinine are elevated, certainly. And so the, the question I have for you all, again, technologically behind, just a raise of hands, who would dialyze this patient? Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I didn't think about dialysis here. Um, until the NP who's taking care of this patient is like, Eddie, you know, I've been dying to ask you, what is your thoughts on the Kiki 2 trial? And I was like, what the hell is the Kiki 2 trial? <laughs> and so Todd is loitering in the MICU, and I say, turn around and say, hey, Todd, what's your thoughts on the Kiki 2 trial? And he says, yeah, what the hell is the Kiki 2 trial? <laughs> right. So it turns out the Kiki 2 trial was published in 2001 uh, in Lancet. And so this was in the middle of COVID, where a lot of critical care... So 2021, in middle of COVID, uh, where we had, uh, where a lot of critical care COVID was a long experience for Eddie. It it went on for a long time. It really did. It really did. Um, But all of us were thinking about COVID and not thinking about renal replacement therapy. And this is what our nephrology consultants had said, hey, because of the QQT trial, we want to dialyze your patient right now. And so we said, oh, well, maybe this is something that's important for us to talk about. So comparison of two delayed strategies for renal replacement therapy initiation. So first of all, first of all, it says two delayed strategies, right? So why not? Why am I not talking about just starting dialysis versus a delayed strategy, Todd? Can you give me some background there? Yeah, I mean, I think that there are a number of studies now that are a little conflicting, but mostly suggests that as soon as the patient develops kidney injury in our ICU, uh, starting dialysis at that point does not improve their outcomes. 
these are patients that don't have an acute indication for dialysis. We talk in our ICU a lot about AEIOUs. You guys know AEIOUs? Right? AEIOUs are the indications for acute dialysis, acidosis, electrolytes, which is really potassium, but you can't say AKIOU because K is not a vowel, right? So we say AEIOU. I is intoxicants, which hopefully don't happen to the patients after they've been in your ICU for four or five days. O, o is overload and U is uremia. So if you don't have an AEIOU, then the question is, okay, this patient's not making a lot of urine, their creatinine's increasing, their BUN's increasing. When am I going to entertain dialysis? And there are three or four pretty good multicenter big studies that if you take the whole of those data, say, doing it as soon as you recognize this patient has stage two or stage three kidney injury doesn't improve their outcome as opposed to waiting a little bit. And the most recent one of those called START AKI, which actually also was published during COVID uh, from the Australians earlier in the COVID, it was in 2020, but suggested that if you wait, up to 40% of your patients will never get dialysis. Some of those will actually recover in three or four days and they don't need dialysis. Some of those actually, you've had the opportunity to have a formal discussion with the family and the family goes, we would never dialyze grandma. What are you talking about? You know, grandma ends up not doing great, but she didn't get dialysis because that was that was the her or the family's wishes. And the other thing that Start AKI suggested at least is, is that if we start dialysis earlier, we may actually delay renal recovery in patients. And so it's a concept that the Australians are now calling dialotrauma, mainly because they're jealous of all of the barotrauma, ventilator trauma uh, terms that we have. And so they said, we'll come up with our own. It's called dialotrauma. They think that if you do dialysis, it just has a little bit of an injury effect on the kidney and it delays that recovery a little bit. So with those data, I'll be honest with you, I pretty much did what I call kick the can approach to patient care, which is, do you want to do dialysis today? Well, do they need any dialysis from the AEIOU standpoint? Nope. Okay, we'll figure it out tomorrow. Okay, we'll figure it out tomorrow. Okay, we'll figure it out tomorrow. Uh, until somebody introduced me to a Kiki too. Yeah, so this so this trial and all those previous trials, the delayed arm was one of the AEIOU or it was... 72 hours of AKI or 72 hours of oliguria. And so this trial said, well, 72 hours is one thing, AEIU is another, and so we're going to compare those two arms. Uh, one of the things we do on the Ed and Todd cast is we grade trial acronyms. This is just lighthearted, scale of 1 to 10. What do you think of AKIKI2 as an acronym? First, do you know what that stands for? Uh, there, so you guys know, there was actually an AKIKI1. And Eddie didn't entirely tell you the true story. When he came to me and said, do you know Akiki 2? I was like, yeah. And I essentially told him Akiki 1. And he goes, nice. So you don't know Akiki 2 because that's Akiki 1. <laughs> and you clearly have no clue uh, of Akiki 2. Uh, no, I don't know what it stands for. A, acute. K, kidney. I, injury. K, kidney. more kidney. I, more worse injury. Right. right. And the 2 is just squared, right? So right. Yeah. It actually, uh, it actually stands for uh, artificial kidney initiation for kidney injury. That's what Akiki stands for. I don't like that switcheroo right there. Before I give you my grade, raise your hands if you're at least a five out of 10 on this. We used to do letters and then Eddie told me that, you know, the whole world does numbers and it's just the US that does letters. Yeah. So we moved to numbers. We now do one out of 10. Uh, Eddie tends to be a hard grader. I tend to be, you know, I mean, soft, compassionate, caring, uh, a <laughs> little bit of a better grader. So. 
Just that's the opposite of how we take care of our patients. So a five, a five out of ten, at least a five out of ten. Yeah. Okay. So I see probably about half the hands. At least a six out of ten. Keep them up. Oh man. At least a seven. I think we're like in the like six seven range here. That's where I was. I was about a five or a six. Uh, out of ten. Six seven range, and Eddie immediately drops it down one. Yeah, so we'll give it a five. Where are you, Todd? Uh, I actually was probably a seven. I kind of like the term a kiki. Okay. Although now that you told me exactly what it stands for, I'm wondering if it should be a kifki, and we should put that F for four in there. Okay. No, I mean a kiki kind of rolls off the tongue. It's easy. Yeah. Uh, I I kind of like it. Um, we and the Todd, and Toddcast, we spend a lot of times on methods, but for the sake of time, we're going to go a little bit quickly through this. If we're able to take this audio and put it on our normal podcast feed, we'll record a little bit more. All right, back in studio, Todd. Let's talk some methods. You ready? Absolutely. So, Akiki Two was a multicenter open label RCT done in 39 ICUs in France. Patients were adults with AKI who were in the ICU and received pressors, and or a ventilator. The enrollment criteria were a little bit complex. The patients who had KDGO stage 3 AKI, which is tripling of your baseline creatinine or any creatinine greater than 4, were monitored. And then they were enrolled if they got to a BUN of 112 milligrams per deciliter or oliguria for 72 hours. This was the criteria for renal replacement therapy in a Kiki 1. Uh, so that's just the patient population. It's trying to say, okay, delayed is better. We get it. That's where we're going to start. Any comments on this before I get to the intervention? Is this the right comparison? I feel like though the criteria is complex, they're just putting numbers to what is now should be usual care, aka waiting, and then effectively they're just enriching for that patient population. Yeah, I think I'd I maybe frame the question a little differently or just state it a little differently. I'm not sure if it's truly framed differently in that from previous studies, we know that waiting is okay. This is sort of how long can we wait? And, you know, what is, what is delayed versus delayed even more? Uh, I think is, is sort of the Akiki 2 question. Uh, there's not an early, i.e., hey, you have KDGO stage two renal failure or stage three renal failure, we're going to dialyze you right now. That, that's not part of this. You're not even eligible until you've essentially gone three days after that. Uh, and then um, the question is, is should we start at that point or should we, should we maybe keep delaying? Yeah. I think that's, and I think, too. and I think this definition captures that. So the intervention was that uh, some patients would start dialysis right away versus like you said, waiting more. The cutoffs for starting renal replacement therapy in the, quote, waiting more group was a BUN of greater than 140 milligrams per deciliter, which is 50 millimoles per liter, or if they had an urgent need, which is effectively the AEIOU that you were talking about during the live show, potassium greater than 6, a potassium greater than 5.5 despite medical treatment, arterial pH of less than 7.15 despite maximizing ventilation, volume overload necessitating at least 5 liters per minute of supplemental oxygen to maintain a SAT of greater than 95%, or an FiO2 of 50% or more on a ventilator or non-invasive ventilation. These all seem reasonable to me. I will say that my first instinct was that these criteria are a little earlier than I usually pull the trigger, Uh, but you have to also remember that the patients we're considering have already had stage 3 AKI for three days. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, you're not a nephrologist. So dialysis is not your 
trick, your tool, your trade. And I think because it's not inherently ours, we tend to maybe wait a little bit longer. You know, I have to call somebody else to do it. So I might wait a little bit longer before I do that, which might be why these are a little bit earlier than when your gestalt says, you know, would I call my nephrology colleagues and say, hey, I think this patient needs dialysis now. But as you said, I don't think they're unreasonable. I think they're perfectly reasonable. They make sense. They sort of objectively define the AEIOUs. And uh, there's not really an I, but the AEOUs. Uh, and I, I think they're reasonable. The primary outcome here was renal replacement, free day, sedate 28. And a key secondary outcome was hospital mortality. We've talked about the free days outcomes before on the podcast and how they're good for accounting for survivor bias. So patients who die on day one and only have one day of dialysis compared to a person who survived but had eight days of dialysis, you don't want to seem like the patient who got one day and died did better. But one thing we haven't really emphasized is that in some of these outcomes that they're looking at, support devices, there's some degree of clinical variation. Uh, so one clinician may keep someone on dialysis where the same another clinician would take them off in the same situation. So to address that, they had a protocolized stopping criteria, which was to consider discontinuation if they had 500 cc's of urine output in, in 24 hours. Stopping was highly recommended if it was one liter in 24 hours or two liters with uh, diuretic use. And then it was mandatory if the creatinine off dialysis was downtrending. Uh, any thoughts on that outcomes or stopping criteria? I mean, other than I find it funny that they have to mandate you shouldn't give dialysis to the patient who has an improving kidney function. It is something that essentially I think they needed to do in the trial in order to standardize the stopping in all of the groups so that they didn't introduce variability uh, between the groups in RRT free days because the patient continued rest, continued RRT at, for different time intervals. The, we're, just, we're just in the studio for the methods. Okay, uh, and that's all we had, so let's get back to the show. Median age was about 65. It was about 70% male. The SOFA score was 11. About 80% of the patients were on mechanical ventilation. The only real difference that I saw was that in the delayed arm, it was about 70% on pressors compared to the more delayed arm, which was about 60% on pressors. But I think this checks both boxes on table one, Todd. What yeah, two boxes on table one. When you look at a table one of a trial, you should do two things. The first thing is you should compare the two groups and say, are they similar? Because that's what you care about to to carry your out to compare your outcomes. Um, randomization works most of the time. It doesn't work all the time. So you should see if you think those are similar. And then the second thing, and I think this is important, is you should look at the overall population and say, do I recognize these patients? Are these people I take care of? Because every once in a while, you'll look at a study and you'll go, this is a really interesting study. And then you'll look at table one and you'll go, who are these people? Like, I don't see these people in my ICU at all. Uh, and in that situation, it may not be applicable to your practice. So that's what I do, the two boxes in table one. A, did the randomization occur appropriately? And it looks like they're similar in the two groups. And are these patients that I recognize and, and are patients that would be in my ICU? And I agree. I think it checks both the boxes. Great. So table two, it starts getting their outcomes. So I've highlighted out for you their RRT free days, and there's a numeric difference. But that p-value of 0.93 is it's pretty convincing to me that there's probably no difference in days alive and free of dialysis. 
But so why are we talking? Why is the nephrologist saying because of the Kiki 2 trial, we want to dialyze your patient after three days? Um, it's because of this mortality part where, again, there's no significant p-value here, but there's a trend towards benefit for mortality if you don't wait, if you go ahead and dialyze after 72 hours. And they were interested in this outcome, and so they pre-specified a multivariate analysis that took that uh, once you control for all these other variables, that actually it does become significant with a pretty large effect size. It's over there in that right column where the multivariate analysis has a hazard ratio of 1.65 with a confidence interval ranging from 1.09 to 2.50 and a p-value of 0.018. So, Todd, you like everybody here said they would they would wait on my patient. We said we would wait on my patient. Are, are we harming patients? Like yeah, this? this is this is what I call in clinical trials the resounding ugh of a result. And the reason I say that is you should always prioritize looking at the primary endpoint because that's what they really think they're trying to accomplish, and that's what they've powered the study off of, and that's what they're targeting to, to show a difference in. And this doesn't have any difference in the primary endpoint. The dialysis-free days is essentially the same between the two groups. Secondary endpoints are important, but the confidence that you have that those are real signals has to be lower than for the primary endpoint. Mortality is something we obviously care about, of course we care about mortality. So it kind of raises up in the secondary. So I like that part of it. But then it doesn't really meet statistical significance on the univariate analysis. And it's not until they, until they start doing what some of us like to call a little fuzzy math in the multivariate analysis that it becomes statistically significant and as big of an effect as we see here. And so honestly, you know, this, Jana talked about this with the hot chicken. This makes you a little uncomfortable. This is like eating the hottest chicken. You know, you wake up the next morning and you're a little uncomfortable. As the Australians would say, is the ring sting? Yeah. The, the Australians that were here visiting us last week said, oh, if I eat that, I'll have ring sting in the morning. I was like, ring sting in the morning. I, think, I figured it out. Okay. Yeah, you can figure it out. You can definitely figure it out. So, so yeah, this gives you a little ring sting. Yeah. So what, so what are you going to do? So the next time you see a patient, they've been oliguric for three days and uh, they don't hit any AEIOU, are you going to think about dialysis? or? So what he's really trying to say in layman terms is how are you going to implicate, put this into your practice? How are you going to try and use these data to improve the care of the patients that you take care of? And I think this is a little bit hard. I still think that it's pretty easy that as soon as the patient develops kidney injury, we don't need to dialyze them at that point. You can wait three days, 72 hours, something in that ballpark. Obviously, if they develop an AEIOU, you're going to dialyze them regardless of what strategy you're using. Uh, once you get to three days, then I think you have to you have to be thoughtful. And uh, what Eddie didn't tell you because we were trying to do this fast is, is that the patients that came into this are all mechanically ventilated or on catecholamine. So they're either on the vent or in shock, which is a lot of our patients, but it may not be all of your patients that have renal failure in your ICU. And I think it's an important limitation that I don't know that I'd extrapolate these data to people that, to patients that don't fit that criteria. Uh, and then the second thing is, is that they use a, uh, uh, BUN of 112 or alleguria and alleguria defined as less than 500 cc's of urine in 24 hours as their inclusion. So if you have a patient that has renal failure at 72 hours that doesn't have a really high BUN, 112, and is making pretty good urine, I'm not sure I'd touch that patient with dialysis either. So those are pretty clear to me. 
Then you say, what about the patients that meet this inclusion for a Kiki 2? And honestly, I think the answer to me is, is I'm probably a little bit more likely to start dialysis in that patient, maybe have a little bit of a lower threshold to start dialysis. But in those patients, if they look like they're doing well, their, their renal failure is not progressing rapidly, I still think I'm going to hold off just because the real signal here is a secondary outcome identified in a multivariate analysis. And I'd love to see somebody confirm it where that's what they're actually targeting and trying to show the difference in uh, before I put all of my eggs in that basket. Yeah, I think I agree. I think it's that he, I wouldn't. He always agrees. He I, doesn't tell no, what the I interpretation don't. is. And then he just goes, yeah, he's got it right. Uh, I would also think about it, but it wouldn't be like a hard 72 hours. It's time to start dialysis. I would think about it a little bit more. I would have a little bit of a lower threshold than I would have if had it been 24 or 48 hours for some of those AEIOU things, but it wouldn't be like a hard stop. Yes, 72 hours. Yes, dialysis. I think that's right. See, he agrees with me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's all we have for this special bonus episode of the ICU Edin Toddcast. If you have any questions for us or anything you'd like us to talk about in the future, you can hit us up at the ICU Edin Toddcast at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on the social at ICUcast, at Ed Chan, that's E-D-Q-I-A-N, and at Todd Rice underscore ICU. Thank you, Todd. Thank you, bootcamp organizers, for inviting us. I've been told the ring sting thing might get us canceled for the future, but that's okay. Uh, thank you, Mike Gannon, for the intro and outro music. Thank you, everyone listening, and we will see you next time. Let's go save some lives. Let's go dialyze some patients. This podcast is for educational purposes. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. It's inevitable, but we try to stay away from opinions, but all opinions represent our own and not of any entity that we work at. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy the podcast.